Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Deconstructing Alpha. This is a podcast where we interview who I believe to be brilliant investment managers, and we have timely and unscripted conversations about current affairs that are going on in the world, about the space and areas and types of investment that that these managers follow, and really kind of get to the bottom of this idea of alpha. And so the idea of alpha is this is the added value uh, from security selection or portfolio management that investment managers can provide to their clients. I'm your host, Jeremy Van Arkel, partner at Frontier Asset Management, and I'm on the investment team. And I will be doing the interviewing, and I'm joined today by Shannon Carroll. How are you today? Uh, Shannon, I'm so glad to have you on here. You know, Shannon, I'm an investment person. And so I can ask some investment questions and we can probably get down into the weeds. And so Shannon, can you audit and stay on our podcast here and then maybe do some summary at the end where we make sure that whatever we talk about is um, pretty straightforward to to the listener. Can you do that for us? Absolutely. I'll be taking notes. Oh, excellent. Okay. So Shannon, tell me about your role at Frontier Asset Management. So I'm currently the account manager and I've worked with advisors from Maine to Hawaii. So everywhere that you can think of in the United States and I've worked in customer service my whole life. So I really enjoy getting to know the advisors and helping them with all their client needs. So our guest today is Carl Kaufman of Osterweiss Funds. And so Carl is the co-president and co-CEO of Osterweiss Funds. Um, That sounds important. And more important to me, he is the uh, portfolio manager since inception of the Osterweiss Strategic Income Fund. Does that fund sound familiar to you when you review our clients and talk to advisors? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's a big piece of a lot of our portfolios. You know, we try to add value um, through manager selection in our portfolios. And Osterweiss has long been a, a position for, that we hold for fixed income. So the subject today is going to be fixed income. I know you love bonds. But the uh, the fixed income space has become extremely interesting here in the first quarter because there, there's talk of reflation, there's talk of inflation, there's there's even talk that since the stock market is doing so well, that why would people even own bonds, right? And I, I even came across an article uh, on the on the interwebs. Um, the article was entitled something like I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was essentially. Why do you need bonds in your portfolio? How to build portfolios uh, that are risk managed without bonds? You know, and I'm like, hmm, I'm not really sure how to do that. And I've been doing this a long time. I think bonds are a very important risk component of portfolios, and I don't think that the same. That I don't think they're the same as stocks. Shannon, are bonds the same as stocks? No, they're not. No, I think they're very different. And uh, but a lot of people probably think bonds are a little bit boring, and a lot of people probably don't think about the art and the science and the added value of bond positioning. And, but we, we find that there is a lot of added value in bond positioning. The bond components of our portfolio have added alpha historically. And so who better to tell us about bonds than Carl Kaufman? So are we ready to proceed with this interview? Yes, we are. Can't wait to hear more about bonds. All right. I know it's riveting. (laughs) It will be. (laughs) Okay. So, we do need to uh, make a note that uh, we'd like all of the listeners to stay on till the end of the podcast for important uh, disclosures and notes about the podcast. But secondly, uh, Shannon and I are going to summarize this call and pull out the key points of the interview. And so that will be coming after the interview. So 
I think we should just get right into it. Uh, um, I don't think there's much more to say. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that this is completely unscripted. So let's see how it goes. <laughs> I hope that the co-president and co-CEO of Osterweiss likes my style of unscripted, but we'll we'll see how it goes. So without further ado, further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Carl Kaufman, co-president and co-CEO of Osterweiss Funds. Carl, welcome to Deconstructing Alpha. We are absolutely so pleased that you can join us here today. I think that this couldn't be a more timely time to uh, discuss bonds, interest rates, corporate outlooks, uh, and what's going on in the marketplace. So welcome to Deconstructing Alpha. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I'm thrilled to be here. So, um, Carl, hopefully we're near the, near the end of a pandemic, hopefully. Um which is certainly an interesting time, certainly an interesting time in capital markets, as well as uh, what the kids say in real life. Um, so where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from San Francisco, where the firm is based. Yeah. Uh, and it's cold here. I mean, you think you're suffering up there. You know, it's, it's in the 40s down here. Well, what did they, what did, what's the saying? There's, there's, uh, something about the summer in San Francisco. Yes, there's never been uh, the coldest uh, winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. I, I can attest to that, uh, you know, in the morning when it sort of uh, gets, it feels real moist and cold. And so um, are you in the city? I am in the city. My wife wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, we're, we're definitely city dwellers over here. Um, so is life slowly coming back to normal there? You know, we were one of the first cities to lock down uh, last March, um, and I think we were one of the first cities to sort of crawl out of our rocks and get back to normal. I would say for the last six months, the traffic, I can't see a change between today's traffic and pre-pandemic. So I don't know where they're all going, but the people are out and, and people wear their masks and they social distance and they they shame those who don't. So it's uh, we're pretty good about following the rules here. And we've all been working from home and it's, uh, it's been tough on the spouses, but I think it's uh, <laughs> been good for us. I love the commute. Right. I, right. I, I just when I feel like the pandemic did come along at a time when just about everybody, at least in the investment community, was probably at their rope, the, the end of their rope with business travel. And and so I think that maybe is the one positive we've had. We're having the same experience here in Atlanta where there's traffic, and there's people and they're out and they're moving. But uh, I'm not sure where they're going and they're certainly not going to work. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right. So tell me your role at Osterweiss Funds. So I, uh, I joined Osterweiss in 2002 to launch a fixed income strategy, basically, for our wealth management clients who were getting older and didn't have any fixed income product to invest in and they needed more income, etc. Um, I have since, uh, you know, the, the fund has grown since then. And I've also taken on a new hat as co-CEO and co-president. 
So I, I run that with uh, with my co-CEO, who has done every job at Osterweiss, um, except the investment side. So I manage the investment side, and she takes care of everything else. And God, I'm so thankful she's here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, John Osterweiss is still active. He works uh, six days a week still. Five, really. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, so he runs the equity side and I run the fixed income side, which is pretty much what I was doing before. So it doesn't take up too much of my time. I'd say 80, 90 percent of my time is spent on the fund. Yeah. So a couple of comments there. You know, I've noticed that with um, some of the boutique managers or, or uh, more independent managers that we work with uh, is that the, the people uh, that run the company are often investment people mm-hmm. and they've often worn almost every hat in the firm. And I, and I really believe that's a great background for leadership, as particularly when you're talking about investments, uh, because um, it really needs to be bottom up. An investment focused, you you know, they just. I believe in the industry, you're you're really dealing with two different types of firms. You sort of have product distribution firms, and then you have uh, people who are really investment focused. So, would you say your firm is in the product distribution business, or are you in the investment focused deliver returns to investors business? Uh, we are absolutely not uh, known as a, as a great distributor and product innovator. Yep. Uh, we are known as a product innovator, but we don't do it for product sake. We always put the client first, and uh, we have since we started the firm in 1983. Yep. And we won't launch a new product unless it meets a client need. And we have a unique way of managing that product that is differentiated and uh, not differentiated for differentiation's sake, but differentiated in terms of risk management. We're we're big on on downside protection, so we find unique and new ways to protect on the downside because we believe the power of compounding by not losing is very powerful and has served us well and our clients well over the years. It's very interesting you comment on that because, you know, my next getting into my next uh, question, which is we work with a lot of independent and specialty firms because we think that's a lot of times where the the the, you know, independent forward thinking is. And and um, what what I what I find is when I talk to a lot of those people, they have sort of a cultural element to their firm that helps them deliver alpha excess returns or or simply better outcomes for people. And and. It sounds to me like you you just said your sort of the uniqueness that runs through your investment process is is it'd be nice if you could lose less when the losing happens or a risk averse approach. And then secondly, that you know, security selection probably really matters. It does. And I'm glad you brought up security selection because in the history of the firm, whether you look at the equity products or the fixed income products and our fund in particular, we tend to have much fewer high conviction positions in in each fund. We don't sort of closet benchmark. We're we're so anti that. Our our motto, we actually have a, um, John's wife is an artist and she did a uh, a, a piece of art with a box and then the big red sign with the line through it. So we are, you know, certainly non-style box. Yeah. And um, uh, we just do what makes common sense. And, and this is true when we started our fund. We, 
We launched it in 2002 when there really wasn't such a thing as an unconstrained bond fund. But logic led us to to think about the fund a little differently and saying that, you know, why can't you have one fund that does investment grade when it makes sense to be an investment grade and do other things when it makes sense to do that and avoid investment grade? So that's how we structured the fund. And little did we know when I went to sort of back test it by looking at other mutual funds that manage money this way, I couldn't find one. Right. And uh, John asked uh, uh, one of the prominent fixed income people in San Francisco, just ran it by her to see if it made any sense. And she said, yeah, it's a great idea, but she'll never be able to sell it. And yeah. John didn't care because it was for our clients. And we did open it up to, to the, you know, it was a 40 act fund, but you know, it was not a concern of ours. That That's a really interesting perspective, you know, and I think today they call that sort of a cultural perspective, you know, so you said a lot of things that are very uh, similar to Frontier and a lot of things that we look for in our investment managers, right? So, so I think um, independence is really important to us as people, as a firm, uh, client first is really important to us, like you said to you. And I think when you start thinking uh, about independently and client focused, you you really start to emphasize risk management and security selection alpha. And and when we you know when we analyze our track record, it seems that it it you know we didn't really get ahead by having clairvoyant big bets or predictions. It's really about process in a way to deliver, you know, it's almost like you're just delivering more consistent returns for people. And as you go through time, that that angle really starts to do a lot better than people who believe that they, they can predict or make big bets. Is that Does that resonate with you? That, you know, when you said we don't like to make big bets, that's something that I have said for almost 20 years here now. Yeah. Is that we don't make bets. I don't like to make bets. Yeah. Yeah. I like to make, you know, investments that have a biased outcome in our favor. Um, I'm not going to, you know, there some people do make bets. I mean, Bitcoin is a perfect example of a bet. It has no intrinsic value whatsoever. It has a dwindling supply and is dependent on new entrants to boost the price up. Yep. That to me, I think we used to call that a Ponzi scheme, but I think we can't. Oh, you know, no, that we have, so new, we have new, new names for that. Absolutely. Well, it's watching now, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but you're absolutely right in that, you know, if you go into it, understanding the risks that are present in the market. And they're always going to be present, but in different proportion. And that's really the art of, of active management, I think, is understanding those risks, not not th- discarding them and saying it doesn't matter because everybody's in the market. So if there's a big risk and the market's going to trade off, why try to beat it? That's crazy. Right. Why would you approach the market that way? This is, as John likes to say, you know, this is almost more important than people's lives. This is their money. (laughs) Exactly. The money in this day and age, uh, you know, I would say 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, wealthy people 
had assets and a lot of people didn't really have investment accounts or 401ks and, and maybe their retirement was more pension oriented and it was just out of mind. And, and today, you know, the, the market dynamic is so different because everybody almost has an investment account and, yep. and they're all accumulating for the future. And then that money will be their, their freedom. Right. And and, I, and I'm not sure a lot of investment firms view it that way. I, I think a lot of investment firms are trying to, say, beat something or, or um, you know, maybe get it right, or they're trying to fit some sort of product parameters. So with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about the Strategic Income Fund, how sure. you view it, how you view the Strategic Income Fund, what, what its purpose is, and how people might use it in their portfolios? Okay. Well, it was launched to be the only fund that our investors should need over many cycles. That was the the, the sort of the, the goal of it was to be sort of a one-stop solution for fixed income. And the way we designed the fund was, I mentioned earlier, it has the ability to span across the fixed income universe. Now, you know, there are a lot of arcane pockets in fixed income, and we're probably going to stick to what we understand and know best and what captures most of the returns in fixed income, most of the alpha. And that is, you know, there's investment grade, which consists of treasuries, agencies, investment grade corporates, some asset backed and commercial paper. Then there's the non investment grade, which is, you know, the high yield market. And also convertible bonds, where we have deep expertise. I, I did convertible bonds at Merrill Lynch, as did one of my co-managers on the fund, Craig Manchuk. Uh, we actually met at Merrill Lynch in the early 90s, both on the convertible desk. So that's a, that's an area that we have always had some exposure to, uh, either busted or, or equity sensitive. So the, 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 the thesis behind the, the fund is we have... You know, we don't have to follow a benchmark. Benchmarks, uh, you know, especially in the high yield market where we find we tend to be invested in for most of the time because markets tend to be upward biased. But when they do have corrections, they are severe. Uh, like an 08 or an, or an 001 or even last year, they tend to be short lived sadly for us, because we love to do buying. Um, but these are the things that we prepare for, and these are the things that we look forward to, because there's a couple of tenants of our fund that are a little bit different than most. One is we can use cash as a tactical asset. So if we feel the market's getting a little bit overpriced or a little bit ahead of itself, we can let bonds, because we, we tend to run shorter durations than the market we let the cash build as, as bonds mature or get redeemed. We don't have to say keep minimum cash or stay fully invested. Um, so that, that's one feature is we use cash. It not only helps during the downswing, but it helps us to buy things because if you have to sell something to buy something, it doesn't really pan out. So we like to have the dry powder and Wall Street knows that we keep a lot of cash. So when uh, whatever it is that hits the fan uh, does what it does, they know to call us. So we see a lot of merchandise because we can put out the bids um, and you know, this talk of liquidity um, in the market. We have no problem with liquidity because when you're a buyer and everybody else is selling, believe me, it's very liquid. 
They may not like the price, but it's very liquid. Um, so that's really the, 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 the thrust of the fund is that when interest rates are rising, you don't want to be in investment grade bonds because there's a direct correlation between price and interest rates there. When interest rates are falling, and not I'm not talking about little episodes of a month where you know the 10-year might go from 175 to one. I'm talking about a cyclical move in rates. That is when you go into investment grade, or you have at least a barbell with investment grade as, as part of that. The last time we were able to do that was in 2007 when interest rates were five and a quarter. And we were clearly entering a meltdown in mortgages, and we didn't know it was going to be the great financial, uh, you know, that um, we had an inkling, but we didn't think it would actually come true. Um, we bought treasuries in 07. We unwound them in, at the end of 08 because at that point, the risk return was extremely favorable towards credit. And we started by buying short-dated investment-grade credit, which was way underpriced. Um, so that that's the type of, so we were down 5% right. in 08 because we sold treasuries two months too early. But you can never time those things perfectly. Right. We had been reducing the position, moving it to cash, and then deployed the cash starting in October. We waited till December. We could have been somebody. But, um, and, and the same, you know, in 2013 during the taper tantrum, we were actually, um, I think, a basis point positive for the quarter. Right. And, one of the few. Um, right. And then and then last year, we were never down double digits last year. Right. But we ended the year up a little over 9%, which was, you know, beat the high yield index, beat the ag, you know, pretty yeah. much that, that was that was a good year for us. That's the kind of years we live for. We just wish we had more of them. Um, you know, unfortunately, give half of our investors heart attacks. I, I think you, you've, um, you know, you've characterized the strategic income fund in in, a, in a kind of exactly how we use the strategic income fund in our portfolios, and and so when we look at mutual funds, we don't you know look at the style boxes, we don't look at single benchmarks. Um, <clears throat> we try to find the performance characteristics unique to your fund, and then and then determine whether those performance characteristics could be uh, additive to our port portfolio. And and so it's interesting that you know in some rating services, you know you might have say three or four stars or, but we, but uh, an analysis that we sort of do where we compare you to multi multi-factor benchmarks or multiple benchmarks and multiple factors across multiple market environments, we see that your portfolio does have less risk and it does produce alpha and it does have a, a bias towards short-term cor corporate bonds. And uh, does, is that a, a good characterization of, of sort of your positioning? It, it has been a very good, uh, that is pretty much what we've been for the last 10 years. Yeah. And, and, and we, we don't want to, um, when you're building portfolios that are outcome driven, right? You want to deliver a certain kind of performance pattern for people, as opposed to just deliver people a pie chart or an asset allocation and then hope for the best. Um, you know, we, we don't want to let the indexes define what we do. Right. So I think when all these people are either indexing fixed income or they're choosing managers that hug indexes, they're essentially leaving the security selection or, or the lion's share of it to the index provider and how they determine what short term fixed income should be. Right. 
That is correct. I mean, yeah. we view short-term fixed income very differently than the market. We may buy an eight-year piece of paper or a seven-year piece of paper that for one reason or another is callable in a couple of years. And we have done our due diligence on the company. And we have determined that this company is paying too much in coupon. So we know or have a pretty good feeling that this company is gonna be refinancing this bond at their earliest convenience. So we don't view that as a seven year piece of paper. We view it as a two year piece of paper that if they don't refinance, our returns are above market. And we've had cases where companies, either because they had pending acquisitions or other things, they just couldn't figure out which entity was going to be doing the refinancing, left the bond out, and we collected an above market coupon for longer. It happens more often than you think. Also, some managements just tend to wait longer. So you can buy something that the market is viewing one way. They're saying this thing's going to be called at the earliest convenience. And we say, no, this company has a history of waiting till nine months before it matures to call it, not three years. Right. Collect that interest. I mean, it's just, you have to know these managements. And in some cases, uh, one company, this is the second time we've done this with them. The management is one of the few private equity sponsored companies that we own. The management of the equity sponsor personally the first time around bought bonds in 2016 when they were in the 60s personally bought like 25 million dollars worth of bonds between the group um and then they rode them back up and then they left them outstanding because it had a way above market coupon and they were collecting it personally when they finally came to refinance it they came to market with another above market coupon they made sure we got our full allocation because we were partners with them and uh, it's still outstanding, could be refinanced, but on the the financing, they carved out 25 million for them to replace the bonds they had. What what, what you're talking about is real detailed security selection. And it's not even just, we analyze this company, we understand its financial statements and and its prospects. It's really the management team and and how they act towards uh, their their borrowing of money and and how they treat their bonds once they're out into the marketplace, which speaks to what I've noticed, you know, as as being a manager that puts together multiple managers into a set a portfolio setting for specific outcomes. What what I've noticed is that there's a lot of alpha to be had in the fixed income side of the marketplace, right there. So the, the way we're positioning our bond positioning, we can position between duration, we can position between credit quality, and, and but there's another thing in there, right? It's not just duration and credit quality. It's almost like the local knowledge in the bond market and and the security selection that's providing the alpha. So is you know so clearly you've performed better in down markets in your fund. And you've provided alpha, which is what we look for, right? And and so, do you think, um, um, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of investors, when they look at their bond space, they just say, "Well, how much out of value can there be? I'm just going to index it, right?" And and but when I look at your portfolio and I compare it to appropriate benchmarks and all that, I mean, there there seems to be significant added value um, from uh, from not only security selection. 
which is, you know, because, uh, but also from the, the risk side of things. So what is, what do you, what do you think real quickly is driving sort of the, what do you think the, the sort of, I know there's no magic sauce or anything, right. But, but with, with the bonds that you're selecting, is it just the approach to how you manage your portfolio and how you think about bond positioning and selectivity of the bonds and the outcomes? Is that what's providing the outcome? It's a, you touch on a very interesting point. That's part of it. That's a very large part of it. Obviously buying the right part of the capital structure in a company that you understand and has the right characteristics. One of the things that drives investments across the firm in equities and fixed income is the concept of free cash flow. Free cash flow is very hard to fool with. EBITDA, all sorts of adjustments, gap, non-gap earnings, all sorts of adjustments. Free cash flow, it is what it is. You either have cash or you don't. Um, So that's one thing. Capital allocation is another. And that gets a little trickier because managements, you know, I I believe that everybody who is in sort of the CFO seat, I think they were dropped on their head before they got their MBA um, and told that buying back stock is a good thing. We used to have a former partner who retired who was classic. We had a management team that we, we, we got along well with, and we had a small bond. We were their only fixed income. We had the whole tranche, and it was great. Anyway, they were buying back stock with their free cash flow because they always threw off free cash. And they came in, and he sat them down, looked them straight in the face, and smiled and said, you guys have spent $280 million in the last couple of years buying back your stock at an average price of 28. It's now at 13. How does that make you feel? Only he could ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the CEO kind of scratched his head and, you know, came up with some BS answer and we all laughed. And I think they got the point. He probably didn't care because he got a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sadly, sadly they, uh, they decided that they didn't need to have debt anymore. So they took us out and didn't refinance. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, that's, but, you know, I think that's part of it. The other part of it is when you talk about benchmarks, there are parts of benchmarks that obviously the the, the indexers and closet indexers and, and sort of benchmark huggers need to have because they're part of the benchmark. But they're a bit like, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, energy E&P and, and, uh, uh, in the U.S., with fracking being prevalent, that business model does not work. It only works so long as Wall Street can finance the company. Because when you frack a well, the decline curve of production is so fast that you can't get your money back. And you have to keep, it's like being on a treadmill um, that's constantly fed with new money from Wall Street. And if you ever read the book, The Frackers, uh, you'll never buy an E&P company again because <laughs> all the history and, right. um, and what they really care. All they care about is, is how many wells do I have in the ground? That's what they care about at the Petroleum Lunch Club. Um, <clears throat> but um, so we just avoid that whole sector. We can do that. It was 15% of the index at one point. Right. We had like a 1% exposure. To, uh, yeah. We have, two. we have some midstream because it still has to be, you know, transported. And it's still a big part of, uh, I mean, you can't 
make plastics without petroleum, right? Um, but it's it's a de minimis position. Yeah. Same thing with shipping companies. Um, you know, we, we saw this in 2007 when, you know, shipping companies were going public. You know, like Maersk and those, all those guys, you know, they, they all went public. And mostly it was a smaller Greek and Norwegian shippers. And I had a guy in because we sit with our equity guys so we can sit in on meetings. And I asked the CEO, I said, now, for 2,000 years, you guys have been family owned. Why now are we getting the opportunity to invest right, right. in your business? Yeah. And he went through all the BS answers. And I said, no, 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 really. What's the real reason? And he explained it to me. It's time to take some money off the table for us. What they saw was that China was being a rising trading partner, had to keep shipping costs low. So they were going to flood the market with shipping boats. And that's what they did and drove rates. I don't know if you remember at one point. Yeah. Energy shippers were paying companies to ship oil around the Horn of Africa yeah. to keep their crews together. Yep. And so yep. we just don't buy shipping companies. So we right. can avoid large parts of the market. Yeah. And same thing with private equity, because there the tables are stacked against you. The interests of the owners are diametrically opposed to the interests of the bondholders. Right. Um, and so we just can avoid that part of the market. All right, so I'm going to recap sure. a little bit here what I'm hearing you're saying, right? So uh, about the uniqueness of uh, Osterweiss and uh, specifically the Strategic Income Fund is that Osterweiss is an independent experience specialist, and it requires a lot of experience, and a lot of local knowledge to understand the specifics of each security. Maybe point number one? No. That added values bottom up? No. Security by security. Risk, man- risk management is extremely important. Um, and that maybe because so much of the marketplace is indexing and focus on these benchmarks, which are inefficiently constructed, being that, which is to, to me, which is so interesting is that that indexes are market cap weighted in the fixed income area, which is amazing to me. So that means you end up owning more of the businesses or that have more debt. That's incredible. But the inefficiencies of the benchmarking and indexing world are creating opportunities for you. They are. That's I'll give you one perfect example. You, you brought up a very good point that, you know, you tend, the benchmarkers tend to buy more of the debt of the companies that have a lot of debt. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it does if you're if you're into benchmarking. I guess so. However, <laughs> from a fundamental perspective, you'll look through, say, some of the passive you know, ETFs and you see that they'll have like 10 tranches of some of these companies. The other fun fact is that when these companies do come to market, even though they have more debt outstanding, they tend to get better pricing. And the reason for that is they, the bankers know and everybody knows that there is a large cohort of buyers that has to buy the deal. They can't not buy a benchmark deal. So they price cheaper. Now, typically the cutoff is about 350 million in issue size to qualify for, it used to be 500 million, they keep on lowering it. It's now about 350 million. So you'll find these passive guys with 900 to 1,000 names in their portfolio. I know. Have 
we have about 100 companies and about 160 positions, it's about as much as we've had. Um, but you'll find that the, the bonds that are under 350 million in size, where some of them are from very good companies that just don't want to issue debt in an amount large enough to qualify for the benchmark because they're doing what's right for them. And I have seen company managements agree to larger debt deals under pressure from their underwriters because it will trade better in the aftermarket. I mean, there's some stuff that goes on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's local knowledge. It's experience. It's independence. It's not having to hug the benchmark and it's security by security, which is about a third of our, of our portfolio is in is in tranches that are under 350 million and therefore not in the benchmark, which actually gets cheaper pricing, which, you know, when people look at our portfolio, I mean, as of Monday, for example, uh, our yield to maturity and yield to worst was greater than the benchmark. But our duration was less than half the benchmark. Right, right. And how do we do that? It's not by taking more credit risk, as the uh, the assumption would be, because we only have 2% of the portfolio in triple Cs. The benchmark has 13% of the, of the benchmark in triple Cs. So we're not taking more credit risk. We're just buying different companies that are in the bench. Right, right. Okay. I think you've given us a great characterization of your fund, the culture at Osterweiss, how you've been able to deliver consistent returns, uh, risk-averse returns, and how you've been able to add alpha through multiple market environments. I think uh, we really appreciate um, how you manage money, the, the fine lost art of security selection, and what it provides for our clients. And so now we're probably going to venture into a subject here that for what I, when I, when I talk to real uh, investment managers who are very security selection focused are areas that you might not want to comment on too much. So we're going to do it as a speed round. Okay. Okay. So we'll, so we'll do these kind of quickly here. And so these are macro, Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, right? Everybody wants to talk macro. You turn on the TV. I told you I don't like to make bets. So I know, right? Macro's betting. Make predictions. Macro's betting. Uh, bottom up is investing. Okay. Um, but uh, but we're not going to hold anybody to anything here. And I'll even comment, and you know, and then and then maybe maybe Shannon can be the decider of the direction of all the way the world is going to go. So um, high yield spreads are they? Are they just? These, we'll do these real quick. High yield spreads are they narrow? Or, or, um, or are they reasonable? They're a little tight right now, but uh, they're not at record lows. Yep. Um, and it probably reflects the optimism in the stock market? I think the optimism in the recovery. Yeah. Okay. So we're off, we're, we're, all of us are sitting here watching uh, Treasury yields spike and the stock market getting a little unnerved. Any comments on on this spike? I mean, like the way I look at it, so I'll talk some macro. The way I look at it, interest rates have been falling for 40 years, and there's probably a reason that economists would say that they've been falling for 40 years. You know, it probably has something to do with financial technology, globalization, aging demographics, and technology all being kind of price destructive. And uh, then you have these central banks pinning everything at zero. And so you can't get too far off the magnet. The magnet's zero. And um, so, Carita, do you think this sort of reflation, 
little spike here is um, a turning of the battleship or well, maybe just a blip? We have some very powerful artillery still at the central banks to uh, distort and depress rates. Uh, however, I will pose you, I will answer your question with a question. Do you think 6% economic growth, 1.5% inflation um, warrants a 0% inflation rate? No. Probably not. No. I think as a, I think the central banks have developed almost a fetish for keeping rates at zero because they fear the repercussions. If they were to raise rates and the market were to crash, obviously all fingers would point to them. Yep. Um, uh, let, let, let's uh, throw in into that question. I forgot one other ingredient, $2 trillion of stimulus, which is larger than the stimulus we provided post-08. Right. Alone. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the market is basically saying, I don't believe that rates should be at zero. And yeah. since I can't do anything about the short rate, um, I'm going to take the long rates up. Now, banks, yeah. you know, and then you also have a technical issue to this, which is that, I don't know if you've been reading about the SLR, you know, it's not going to be extended. This is the uh, the capital relief that banks got for owning treasuries. Right. So that's not going to be extended beyond the end of the month. The, the problem there, the Fed has got themselves in a box and they can't get out. Yep. Um, banks have been taking in massive amounts of deposit despite the move in the stock markets. I mean, these are record deposits. And they typically use those deposits not to make loans because demand has been very low for loans as, as companies are going to the capital markets for those. Right. They've been buying treasuries with those deposits. So that's the way you balance out your balance sheet. But now they're not going to get credit for that. So in the last few months, dealers, i.e. banks, have sold, you know, 80 plus billion dollars worth of treasuries because they don't get the special treatment for them. Yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. And, and so, so there may be a point in time where banks stop taking deposits and the Fed is it's another way of the Fed driving rates lower because right. repo rates are now at about a 0.01 percent. So you might get to a point where short-term rates actually do dip below zero. Yeah. And that would be a massive distortion of where they should be, you know, the natural rate, they call it. Right. Um, so we'll see what happens. But I think that the rise in rates is appropriate. I think short rates should rise at some point unless the Fed wants to create such a liquidity crunch. Not a, it's not a liquidity crunch in the normal sense of the word where they used to raise rates to where nobody could afford to borrow. It's totally different this time. Yeah. Um, you know, banks won't be able to won't want to make loans to some of these companies. Uh, so yeah. it, it, it cause a recession. And they'll get blamed for that, but they won't have yeah. much ammo to come to the rescue. I, I know. I've, I've heard stories of European banks turning away uh, savers. We don't want your money. I mean, it, it appears that the negative interest rates to me are a reflection of a cost to store your money, you know, because there's too much money. And, much of it. 
Nobody wants it. And, and it's, it's like a storage fee, you know? And so, so I think what's going on with interest rates, you know, um, generally speaking in economics, it's a ref- interest rates, they say simply is just a reflection of inflation. But again, I think it's the details, right? And I think it's this, the result of Fed policy, the amount of money that's out there, the interest rate differentials around the world, all of it's not necessarily that inflation needs to spike. No, it's just an imbalance. No, we don't need seventies inflation. No, to make this thing. Yep. You know. Yep. Uh, everybody's saying we should really prevent seventies inflation. We're not going to get seventies. Well, you don't need seventies. I just need a normal inflation cycle. Right. I mean, so. Inflation. Yeah. Go ahead. So let's let's flip the coin over to the other side of the uh, capital structure. So um, you know you you own a lot of. Um, so you have interest rate exposure and you have business exposure because you own both types of, you know, uh, you have um, governments, probably government, maybe some governments or high quality bonds and you have corporate corporate bonds in your portfolio. So what is the word on the street from management teams at the businesses that you buy bonds for? Of. I will tell you, for the last couple of quarters, we have been really pleasantly surprised at the strength of business. Most of our companies, I'd say probably predominantly, have beaten their estimates. And a, more than a handful have had all-time record earnings and cash flow. The biggest complaint I hear is the inability to hire enough people. And that's why I think this latest stimulus is going to make that more problematic. Right. Because people are making more than they were making working. So why wouldn't you stay home? Um, and that that's the problem. But what's happening is, so you have, as a result of that, you have supply chain issues. And you have prices going up. Right. The Bureau of Labor Statistics doesn't seem to call that inflation. <laughs> Um, right. They, they, they basically have admitted they don't watch prices anymore. Right. So I don't know what they watch, but I, I kind of do. But well, yeah, it, it does. Up. Costs are going up. Prices are going up. I mean, we're and, trying to get and, a share. And, and supplies are short, right? I mean, you're hearing about supply shortages all over the place. Now, something made, and 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 the 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 the, the carpenter's telling me I can't get poplar. I know Poplar over the years has always had shortages. I don't know why, but yep. so the prices have shot up. I mean, yeah, look at yep. copper. Copper hit like $9,000. It's ridiculous. Right, right. Which, which probably gets into the uh, final sort of macro question. Is this, you know, I, 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 I was here on earth in 1999 in this industry. And is this euphoric what's going on it just seems like every every investable asset is ex- exploding higher in price um and so uh is this euphoric or is this meant to be this is a logical outcome somewhere in the middle i will i will give you one sentence it is not different this time um i think that <clears throat> If you look at the type of investors that are driving some of this, I mean, we are meeting with chief investment officers that started work after a wait. 
Yeah. I've actually never been through a correction or a, a bear market, a real bear market. Last year was a was a fake bear market yeah, it because was, it wasn't economically driven. That's right. Nobody was afraid that the world was coming to an end last year. We knew it was a government-induced stoppage of, econ- of the economy, which is unprecedented, yeah. but we knew it would be over. The Spanish flu was over in 18 months. Looks like this is taking a similar trajectory. Right. Um, so there's no fear out there right now. You know, the, these type of war wounds, you know, one of my partners loves to, every uh, time we get on a call, he says, we have over 100 years experience, the, the three of us. And then he goes through how that much they have and how much I have. Yeah. I, but, like, um, I like to say I've made more mistakes than concepts that they, they've even thought of. <laughs> right. Like I tell half of our salesmen that cover us, I admit that half the lines you're going to try to use on me. Uh, <laughs> yep. But so. what, what the point I'm making is that, you know, we've run out of things to buy, which is why you're seeing things like, you know, non-fungible tokens. Yeah. People at the high end of, of the wealth strata definitely have money to spare. And that is where you are seeing hyperinflation. So the system is working exactly as it should. The things that ultra wealthy people buy are going up dramatically in price, you know, top scale real estate, cruise, you know, the, 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 the boats, you know, the big boats that these guys buy, the mega yachts. Uh, art, modern art, especially. It's kind of like, you know, these art dealers are kind of chuckling all the way to the bank. Right. Um, you know, um, and now it's these, this is online art. Turn off the electricity and what do you have? That, that's, I, I, I'm, <laughs> but it's you know, what is it? Never cease to amaze you, never cease to amaze you, or I'm not, I, you know, how do I get surprised anymore? I was extremely surprised by the digital blockchain art. Yeah. Which is, which is, I mean, you can't even hang it on your wall. I don't understand, you know, I, I guess, but, I, but in the same sense, I did watch that uh, Netflix show last night about all the art, fake art that's out there. And, and so um, art is almost, you know, I'm, I'm an investor and it's just not tangible enough for me. And, no. and, but, but, okay. Uh, you know, people have too much money. It doesn't mean that much to them anymore. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here on the macro stuff is uh, the economy is really good from the businesses that you're talking to. Um, there's imbalances from caused by the Fed and central banks all over the world. Interest rates are it's reasonable to expect that in, or there's reasonable to see, to expect what is happening currently with interest rates and that there may be some inflation and um you know, all of those sound extremely reasonable. It's just that we've had, I think that's part that's going to, could surprise people is that the difference between 40 years of one direction and then turning that, you know, there seems to be a lot of things riding on low interest rates, but we'll see. Um, all right, Carl, Carl Kaufman, Osterweiss Funds, uh, co-CIO, co-CEO, um, manager of the Strategic Income Fund, you have done a fantastic job for our investors. Um, we appreciate um, all of the, you know, I guess I could say a lifetime of work in this area, probably, and appreciate the honest responses and reminding uh, in investors and people who are listening to this podcast that um, 
you know, this is not easy. It, it uh, requires independence and experience and specialty. And it often is not what you think that's driving performance. Right. And, and, and um, so um, I've really enjoyed our time. I, 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 we're out of time. I, I, I think we'll have to do part two. What do you think? I agree with you. This has flown by very quickly. And I want to thank you for having us and, and putting your faith in, in, uh, in our firm. Fantastic. You, yeah. You have a, you have a great day, great weekend. And we'll check you back in well. with you shortly. I'm sure. Thank you. Wow. Wasn't that great, Jeremy? Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I, I just love having these conversations uh, um, with, you know, I mean, these people have huge responsibility. Uh, they manage billions of dollars. Um, it, yet at the same time, they're just really just great down to earth people and even funny. Yeah, I thought it was so clear to see like why they align with Frontier so well. Yeah, I think the part. I mean, he, I mean, how many times did he say, "Well, we need to consider the client, right?" It's, it's, it's you, the the feeling you get from the way he talks about managing money is really client first, right? We we don't manage products, we don't manage stories, we don't sell products. We manage money for people, and that was really that just shown through. And uh, and then the second thing is is that well, if our clients are people, they're concerned with risk. Right. Right. And, um, so I think that both of those things are, are very aligned with frontier. Yeah, absolutely. So Carl said a couple of things that I was hoping you could elaborate on one of them being the taper tantrum. The taper tantrum was in August of 2013. It was the late summer of 2013. And, and what happened was, is that coming out of 08, the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, and the, uh, due, due to their um, policies to help out the economy and to keep interest rates low and to support the bond market, they went on a campaign of what they call QE. And so QE is quantitative easing. And what that means is that the government goes out and buys bonds and essentially buys its own bonds back, which is an effect, you know, in a weird way, printing of money. And, right. and uh, so that was very beneficial to the economy. And it was, it kept interest rates low because they just kept buying bonds. And then, so here's the taper tantrum part in the summer of 2013, they said, well, we're not so sure we want to do that anymore. <laughs> and so they tried to stop doing it and, and the market through a tantrum the bond market through a tantrum. So uh, interest rates rose uh, in anticipation in the bond market that the Fed would stop buying bonds. That was the tantrum part, which caused losses in bond portfolios, a little bit of loss. And then the tapering was essentially their their word for, we're not going to buy as many bonds. We're going to buy less and less bonds as we go through time. So that was the last time. You know, So interest rates have fallen pretty precipitously for... Well, my entire career, I guess. <laughs> they just keep going down. Uh, but, you know, so interest rates have fallen for 40 years. Uh, they've, uh, and we've been in a current campaign of, of federally, uh, federally supported bond markets all over the world. And, um, and when they s- decide to stop doing that, then the bond market gets a little upset. They have a tantrum. 
What about a non-fungible tokens? Yeah. How about non-fungible tokens? Like, I mean, the element that's important is that you, there's a way to code things digitally to say who owns it. Like oh. it can't be copied. Right. So I can send you a picture or I could post a picture on Facebook and someone can copy it and they can send it to somebody else. And now there's two copies. Right. right. And so whose picture is it? Right. And I, I mean, we could all say, well, it originated from me, but so the blockchain enables somebody to say it's mine. That digital property is mine. So you can now say or buy the original version of a video. Say yeah, that's LeBron, crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like LeBron James jump, uh, slam dunking a basketball, I think is something that was bought. And, and you said, no, it's mine. And it's my artwork, right? Because it it's coded in the interweb, in the internet. I always say interwebs is being trying to be funny, but I guess we have to be serious a bit. But <laughs> internet says that you own it. And so think of all the digital things you can own. And so that's what people are buying and owning. Um, and, and people are seeing value in it because let's say I make, there was a, a piece of art, um, a digital piece of art that sold, I think for $60 million. Wow. Which really just looks like a JPEG, but, but I guess if you, you know, if you blow it up and all this stuff, it's a very intricate piece. It took years and years and years to make, um, but it can't be copied because somebody now owns it. And, but real artwork, you know, if you watch any of these art shows on Netflix and, and Amazon, you know, there's several shows about the art, the people who falsify art. And, uh, and I'm actually fascinated by that, 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 you know, someone would spend millions of dollars on a painting, but somebody else can just copy it, make a, make a copy. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. And so it feels, it feels, so I think some people are saying, well, there's more ownership of a digital property in the blockchain than ownership of art that can be copied. So one thing that I think we should highlight on is when Carl was talking about um, Osterwise not making any bets. I think that's one thing that really resonates with clients. I think so too. And as particularly in this environment, this does feel like a better's environment, right? So if we're going to go back to the blockchain and Bitcoin, you know, it's hard to make a case that this digital currency you know, a lot of people think it's it's pretty vague of what it actually is. So what are people actually buying, right? They're, they're really, I think, just buying the right to sell it to somebody else at a higher price, right? And so that's pure speculation, right? Or betting, right? You're right. buying something that really is very intangible in its value uh, with the, the hopes of selling it to somebody at a higher price. And I think that's, there's a lot of that going on in the marketplace right now. And, and so um, the characterization, you know, you know, academically, the characterization is you're either an investor or speculator. And so an investor buys and makes investments that they feel relatively certain about the, not about the outcome or possible future of that investment because they've done their research and they might know, say, if you buy Home Depot stock, they might know what the sales of that company is, what the profit margins, what the earnings are likely to be, what the growth plans are, who manages the company. And it's just, it's, it feels very well-researched and, and there, there is a, um, a logic behind why the investment was made. And a speculator is really somebody who just buys something with the hopes of selling at a higher price. Right. They don't really care what they're buying. 
they just want to be in on the game. Right. And uh, I think you could see that in the current marketplace. All right. So to close our time here, one final question for you. Would you index it? Oh, would I index bonds? Yes. Let's hear it. I, I would index a certain type of bond, but not this type of bonds, right? There's so much security selection going on. And, and it, you got the feeling from, from him that, A, he was very passionate about what he do, did and really enjoy the analyzing of the bonds and the businesses and the corporations and the people that they're putting together in their portfolio, but that it's really just one bond at a time, right? And, and so I wouldn't, um, philosophically, I wouldn't index corporate bonds because I think, um, there's a lot of art and science there and a lot of potential added value. And I wouldn't index something that Osterweiss did because to me, it looks like what they're doing is excellent as it is. So um, the indexing piece would probably result in a not so not as good outcome. So I would not index short-term corporate bonds. I absolutely agree. All right. Thank you for today and stay tuned for the disclosures. Excellent. Thank you, everybody, for uh, hanging in there and listening to this. Um, I thought it was a great interview. Thank you, Shannon, for helping me steer through this. And I look forward to um, uh, touching base with everybody in a couple of weeks with our next podcast, which will be with Robert Horrocks at Matthews Asia. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The information does not constitute advice or a recommendation of any specific investment, mutual fund, or mutual fund company. Before making any investment, you should carefully seek independent legal, tax, and regulatory advice. In particular, you should seek the advice of a licensed financial advisor regarding the suitability of the investment product, taking into account your specific investment objectives, financial situation, any particular needs, and your ability to assume the risk and fees involved before investing. This podcast and presentation are for informational purposes only. Frontier assumes no liability for any action taken in response to listening to this podcast. Frontier Asset Management is not affiliated with any specific fund company. The views and opinions expressed by each speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market and other conditions and Frontier disclaims any responsibility to update such views.